reading from the first epistle of Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking a place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear his name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel reading this morning is from Mark 8:22 verses 9 or 8:22 to 9:1. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his hands and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what, it, what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation 
of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think upon uh, this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, and specifically Peter, that you would give us understanding, and that we would know how to be a community that hears these words and appropriates this interaction into our own life, our own story with you. So meet us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Jesus is confusing. Right? I think that's fair to say. Uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that following Jesus has led you down paths that have felt like death. They felt like um, you entered a cul-de-sac of which you're just going round and round and round, and you see no life sort of spinning you out of the cul-de-sac. Have you, have you felt that, right? Jesus is confusing. And the moment you begin to think about Jesus as a leader, right, we begin to attach certain words. Uh, this is Christ the King Sunday, right? So we think of, uh, of, of the king. Any fans of the crown out there? You know, we, we are curious about leadership. We're curious about people at the top of leadership, whether that's a literal king or a queen or whether that is a president or a prime minister or whether that is a senator or a congressperson or, you know, just on and on. We could just look at the stretches of ways in which we inhabit roles of leadership in our culture. You're a boss in a workspace, right? You have charge over some employees. And just on and on. You're a mom. You're a dad. You're an aunt. You're just on and on. You have relative power. And the moment you begin to think about your life inside of that power, the question becomes, you know, how do you make sense of that role? You know, what, what do you do to enact that role? And the thing that you discover when you read the gospel story, and certainly when you read Mark's story, right, of Jesus' life, is that Jesus is constantly challenging the taken-for-granted notions of what it might mean to be a Messiah, of what it might mean to be the king, of what it might mean to be the one who's actually bringing in God's real kingdom. Jesus is confusing all of the ways that people thought about that role. And what Mark goes on to show us, and he certainly shows us that here in this particular text, is that not only is he constantly upending our notions of kingship or our notions of leadership, but he is upending our notions of what it means to be a human being as well. What it might mean for us to be persons renewed in the likeness of this king. So as we were talking about this this past week, uh, Chris noted, he said, yeah, we, we were all noticing, actually, hey, this is not an ancient problem. This is a contemporary problem. Like, I struggle, right, to think about Jesus in the right way. And I struggle to think about myself in the right way, right? I struggle to let him upend my view of God and to upend my view of myself. And so Chris said I had come across a tweet from Rain Wilson. So he's best known, right, for Dwight on The Office. And this is what he says, uh, sometime late this summer, actually, I think. He says this in a tweet. The metamorphosis of Jesus Christ from humble servant of the abject poor to a symbol that stands for gun rights, prosperity theology, anti-science, limited government that neglects the destitute, and fierce nationalism that is truly, that is, is truly the strangest transformation in human history. 
So when you look at the news feed, and you look at how evangelicals are popularly characterized today, in other words, what are we embodying of the life of Jesus? One of the things he's suggesting in his tweet is that we're confusing people because we don't look a lot like Jesus. We look a lot more like the leaders of the world, right? Um, when we look around, it would be really possible if you want to take that first healing story that we just read as a metaphor for being human. We might even say that we live with Jesus in such a way that we're like that, we, we sort of have the first touch, right? We've sort of got this sense of Jesus is real, Jesus is the Christ, but we don't have the second touch of healing. Our, we're, we still see people as if trees walking. We still see Jesus as if a tree walking. He's just, he's there, but he's murky, he's foggy to me. I don't get him. Now, it's interesting that the interaction that we're reading this morning, this great confession of Peter and the great rebuke of Jesus of Peter as well, right, that we're reading this in this context of Caesarea Philippi, which was a city that was known in part because it possessed a temple. There was a temple there uh, to the cult of the emperor. So in other words, this is this context in which Everyone is excited about Rome, at least marginally, perhaps, or at least ritualistically excited about Rome. And if there was an opportune time for Jesus to just play into the nationalism of his day, this would be it. Right there, in the, it sort of as a, as a major confrontation, you would say, yes, let's rally the troops. Let's uh, overthrow Rome. But Jesus actually says the opposite. The Son of Man is going to suffer. So there are three things I want us to think about in connection with this set of interactions. The cross, the rebuke, and the invitation of Jesus. The cross, the rebuke, and the invitation of Jesus. So the cross, right? Jesus asks this very important question, you know, who do the people say that I am? And then he pulls in more tightly to the disciples, and remember who they are, right? They are the people that have followed Jesus around pretty consistently. They've heard all his words. They've had the private teaching of Jesus where he's explaining some of his words, right? They've had these sort of profound experiences of miracle in his presence, right? The healings, the demons cast out, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, right? Now the, they've carried baskets of leftovers, right? These are those people, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses that he's the Christ, right? He's the Messiah. He's the promised one of God. And then Jesus immediately begins to fill out his own personal understanding of what that means. It all hinges. Everything that you've been experiencing these months that you've been with me, right? Everything hinges on suffering and death. Everything hinges on suffering and death. Everything hinges on the cross that Jesus says he will bear. So right there in Caesarea Philippi, right, when you would expect him maybe most to embrace this sort of bold opposition to Rome, he says, I'm going to die on one of the crosses. And everyone knew what he was talking about. There was nothing glamorous about that. There was nothing romantic. You know, crosses weren't little gold things we wear, you know, around our necks. They weren't things that we, we look at sort of, uh, um, you know, in a, in a romantic way or in a, in, a, in, a, in a way in order to be moved by God's love. These were things that you saw in your everyday world that were emblematic of, of someone who had attempted, right, to rise up against the kingdom of this world and was overthrown on a cross. It's a symbol of death. 
Criminals died on crosses. Political rebels were executed on crosses to make an example of themselves. And Jesus so uses this title, the Son of Man here, appropriates it to himself, and he begins to talk about this text from out of Daniel chapter 7, which imagined this glorious day of God's reign when God would send someone like a human being, a human being who possessed really otherworldly power. And that individual would sort of enact God's reign. He would bring about the kingdom of God, right? So there's all kinds of expectation. Jesus takes that title and he connects the dots of it to suffering and death, to the cross. In other words, it feels opposite. It doesn't feel like these things go together. Which one of these things is not like the other? And that's how people would have heard what Jesus was saying. But what Jesus is simply saying is this, is that Christ the King, he will practice kingship by way of the cross. He'll practice his kingship by way of the cross. It made no political sense. If, if you had hired the best political strategist to come in and say, how do we bring about the kingdom of God? How do we all get behind Jesus? They would never, ever, ever have come up with a strategy in this vision. Nobody. It makes no political sense whatsoever. It also made no religious sense. Because within the Jewish tradition, in the Hebrew scriptures, you have a text like Deuteronomy chapter 21 Verse 23, that just very simply observes that anyone that dies on a tree is cursed by God. In other words, politically and religiously, the Jews and the Gentiles alike sort of perceived this kind of execution as being the most shameful way to die that could only mean one thing. You are rejected by man and God alike. That's all it could mean. And Jesus says, I will take up my cross. Now, we read this text, you know, some 2,000 or so years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the benefit that we have is hindsight, right? That Christians uh, have been historically sort of pushed to reimagine and rethink, well, what does the death of Jesus mean, right? Because he was raised from the dead, so it couldn't mean the ending, right? It had to mean the beginning of something. So Christians have a rich theological history of reflecting on what might it mean that Jesus died. What might it mean when Jesus sort of sees crucifixion as the power beneath the kingdom of God? We know, for example, that Jesus in his death identifies with us extensively in the brokenness and experience of human brokenness and sin. That when God chose to come into our world, he didn't live with privilege. He didn't live with privilege. He insisted on bearing the full experience of human life, even when that meant his own unjust death. That's who God, that's who Jesus is revealing to us. That's what he's revealing to us about God when he takes up the cross. Now, we also understand, for example, that the mystery of Jesus dying in some sense is a substitution, right? There's something about his dying that we understand that Jesus dies instead of us, at least in some ultimate sense, right? He is our substitute. That is, he takes two gods on self, right? A death that did not fit the person that he actually was. 
Jesus consistently loved God. Jesus consistently loved neighbor. He consistently lived toward all of the people of the earth with truthfulness and love and compassion and honest judgment. There was nothing about the way he lived life that merited or deserved or was in any way death-like. His presence was only ever life-giving. And so as we've reflected on what it must mean that Jesus died, we know that it means that he's a substitute, that he dies instead of us, so that in his resurrection, God is pleased to say, you rise with him. And so Jesus' death brings about, some, by some act of God's mystery and justice, right, brings about uh, absolute reconciliation between humanity and God himself. It's interior even to our own selves, within our own stories, and with our fellow human beings, right? In other words, Jesus enacts a way of being human and opens up a way, a path of humanity, for us to sort of live in a reconciled way with God and with one another. It's a beautiful thing, but Peter, of course, had none of that hindsight. He's just in the moment. He sees crosses dotting the landscape that they've walked around in their journey with Jesus And Jesus says, that's my destiny, the cross. There is no kingdom come. There's no salvation that's personal or cosmic without the cross. And that's Jesus' point here. Will we wake up to what he's sort of sharing? Now, the second thing, the rebuke. So Peter is confused, right? That's obvious. It, 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 he, he can't be otherwise, I think. We just have to own that and be honest about that. And I, I love this part of the story. Now, this is what part of my favorite part of the story. Why? Because it shows us the kind of intimate relationship that someone like Peter or the rest of the disciples live with Jesus. In the incarnation, God has sort of accommodated himself to human flesh, right? He's become fully human in our presence. So that, you know, uh, and and that meant that you could disagree with him. (laughs) The way you might have an argument with a friend. That you could push on him the way you might push on a friend that you disagree with, right? And, And that's what you see happening here. It is, you know, for all of Peter's, like, ridiculousness here in this particular moment and all of the, the judgment we're going to talk about in just a moment, right, this, this set of interactions tells us something about the way Jesus lived with these people. Have you ever thought about how Jesus will let you push on him? How you bring your disagreements, you bring your anger, you bring your arguments to him, you bring your doubts to him. You know, as a community, we're often sort of talking about being a safe space for questions, being a safe space to ask any question, being a safe space in which you can sort of bring your doubts or even your anger and your frustration with God to God because he can take you. He can live with your doubt. He can live in the presence of your disagreement. And here, there's just this beautiful place where Peter pushes so boldly on Jesus and essentially says, hey, you know, your vision and your strategy for the kingdom, they're just all wrong. You got it wrong. And he does it politely, respectfully, it seems like, hey, Jesus, wrong message, wrong script. You're off script, in fact. Don't you know you're off script? It's, It's such a beautiful moment. When we feel that we can't be honest with God, about our own confusions with God, it may actually betray more unbelief than belief. 
Can you disagree with him? But the vulnerability, of course, the vulnerability of this rebuke, it goes in both directions, right? Because Jesus throws it right back at Peter, right? And he does so in a way that's even more bold and stronger, right? Get behind me, Satan. Now, here's the point. We live in a world in which we, we see partially, right? We sort of get the title of Jesus. He's the king. This is Christ the King Sunday. He's Messiah. He's the Son of Man. He's deity. And we can confess and sort of attach all of these words, all of these accolades, all of these titles to Jesus. But if we aren't letting him explain the content of his identity to us, we still don't get him. And so what Peter does here is he begins to help Peter see and what Jesus rather does to Peter is he helps him see that you've got it all wrong. You don't know me. You don't know God. Get behind me, Satan. That's harsh language, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty tough. Get behind me. You're like the accuser. You are the accuser, right? The one who's trying to disrupt the coming of God's kingdom. Do you remember the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? Maybe it's helpful to sort of go back into that concrete space, right, of the temptation in the wilderness. And there in that context, what does the devil do? The devil challenges Jesus, right? He challenges his kingly calling as Messiah. And he urges Jesus to do what? To you know, demonstrate your power, right? Turn some, you're hungry. Turn some stone into bread. Or he... He, he tells him to, to what? You know, demonstrate your power and your command of the heavenly angels, right? So throw yourself off the temple top, you know, get to the highest part and throw yourself down and, and he'll save you. Test God. And then he says, you know, bend toward my will, right? And I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, what is being tempted there? Will Jesus enact his kingly identity after the pattern of Satan? Or will he lean into the words of the Father who loves him? That's the temptation. Will you enact your Messiahship without God or with God? And here in this particular moment, Jesus helps Peter see that his words don't fit God. They fit the brokenness of Peter's world. They fit the brokenness of a world that is marked through and through by hum human beings, a humanity, political systems, everyone that has been built around the alternate narrative of the devil himself, that you can be a human being without God. This is why I think a tweet like that of Rain Wilson is so damning to contemporary evangelicals. It's because the church, Christians, we have often taken up a vision and a strategy that is so absolutely foreign to the words of Jesus right here. Jesus has come to take up the cross. And this is where Jesus' rebuke is so profoundly hopeful. Because what he invites Peter into is an honest look of himself, an honest look at the way he thinks about the world, the way he thinks about meaning, the way he thinks about the Messiah, the way he understands and interacts with Jesus. And there's all kinds of judgment in this statement, yes, but it's truthful judgment that's meant to do what? To invite Peter into a very different place. Get behind me. 
It's not just a word of condemnation, right? It's a word of invitation. Get behind me. Align yourself with me. Recalibrate, right, your life with the life of God in the world and the person of Jesus Christ. Recalibrate your life to that world. So think about this last thing, Jesus' invitation to follow in the way of the Christ, or the cross, rather. So the story that Mark has been telling over and over again upends our understanding of who God is. Jesus shows us something about God that we forget or we misalign with or we distort, right? He shows us who the real God is. Here, Messiah who takes up the cross, who loves to the very end of himself, who lives a life of self-donating love. But then Mark is also showing us, so what does it look like for you to be a human being? What would it look like for you to be recalibrated into the likeness of God by the person of Jesus? What does it show us about a powerful and faithful human participation in the reign of God? That's what this text invites us to. It's an odd strategy for life, right? And yet Jesus says that the only way to save your life is to lay your life down. That you find your life when you embrace the pattern of Jesus' life. And I don't like that. And you don't like that. Because it's in those moments when we're experiencing the world in such a way that we feel like we've entered the cul-de-sac of spin. And we're never going to get out to a place of life. It's an odd strategy for life, and yet it is the strategy that Jesus calls us to. So how do we need to work this truth into our own calling, our own life as disciples of Christ? What does it look like? Let me mention a few things. First is this. It has something to do with our life with God himself, right? Will you let God tell you who he is? Will you let God reveal himself to you in Jesus? Will you take in what is being told to us about God? And not just that, will you let him occupy the role of Christ? Will you let him occupy the role of king inside of your life, right? And what does that mean for you practically? It means that your life, my life, has to be decentered off of itself and onto him. So last week mentioned that great sort of commentary by St. Augustine where he says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So when you think about the way you've managed your life, what does the restless heart look like? What have you wandered toward to try to carve out an identity for yourself, to carve out some peace for yourself, to sort of make a bitter life a little bit sweeter? Like, what are the ways that that's looked like in your life? Maybe you're just, you know, are, are you an argumentative person in every relationship because you've got to have the last word? That's a wandering. Are you sort of caught in an upward spiral of, of, of sort of upward mobility that you imagine that if you just get to the next level that you'll be happy and then it's the next level and the next level and maybe it's vocational trajectory you have. Maybe it's a vocational a trajectory of wealth. Maybe it's a trajectory of notoriety. You know, what is it that you think is essential to the good life for you? What is your wandering heart doing in its restlessness? Here, when Jesus says to lay your life down, to take up your cross, he means at the most basic level that you begin to let God reorder your loves. 
You let him come into the center and make sense of all of your wanderings, all of your restlessness, so that you become a person that is at rest because you've received the identity of son or God, beloved from him. And so you begin to live differently in the way you think about your own desires, your own dreams, your own hopes, your own aspirations. You're aligned with the trajectory of Jesus' life. Your life with God. What about your life with yourself? Some of you and some of us in the room, really all of us, have experienced some form of trauma in our lives. Uh, you know, and for some of, for some of you, it's, it, you know, you, you think my life's pretty easy. My trauma is at best small T, right? It's, it is not a capital T trauma. But you know what? Every single person in the room has experienced the brokenness of this world dished out toward you from someone else. There's a sense in which you could identify with the role of a victim because you've not been loved the way you might have been loved. You've not been loved to your fullest. You've not experienced consistently the love of, of your caregivers, of your parents, of people in your family. And not only have you sort of not experienced the good that would have been so wonderful for you to have had in life, but guess what? You've experienced harm. Because it's not just the absence of love that, that's, that's missing in your life sometimes, it's the presence of harmful behavior. People have lied to you. People have maligned you. People have moved toward you in hurtful ways, even abusive ways. What's the trauma of your life? You see, here, can you bring that story to Jesus? Can you lay your life down before Jesus? Which means very simply this, that you look to him to take your story to some other ending than its logical conclusion inside of a broken world. You're more than a victim. Jesus would restore you to agency so that you express your humanity in his likeness. So that your life is caught up and drawn into all that God is doing in the person of Jesus. His future is your future. That's the promise of his kingdom. But this final area is our life with neighbor. You see, as we are decentered and we sort of let Jesus reorder our loves, and as we bring our hurts and our harms right to Jesus, and we find that he promises to move our story to some place that we could never ever get to on our own without his presence in our lives, we find and discover what? A freedom to actually embody the likeness of Jesus in the world in the way we relate to our neighbors. So as we experience a God who loves us in this way, in his own death and in his resurrection, we are able by faith to connect with that which God did in Jesus so that we live as sons and daughters who take up cross in behalf of neighbor, even when it makes no sense to us. And that's hard. But that is the calling of the Christian disciple. That is the calling that Jesus situates before us here. We become a space. We become a person, a relationship in whom and through whom other people encounter the real Jesus. Leslie Newbegin, in his little book on Scripture, which, by the way, I commended to you. It's a wonderful sort of very brief introduction to the story of Scripture as a whole. Um, 
he, he says this. He says, what the gospel does is show us that Jesus' life from a purely earthly point of view ended in failure. And yet, because he committed himself in total obedience and love to his Father, he was raised by the Father to glory as the start of a brand new creation. And insofar as you and I commit all that I do, all that is imperfect, as imperfect as it may be, as we commit these things to God and Jesus Christ, trusting that what has been committed to in faith will find its place in God's final kingdom, each of us must be ready to take our share in all of the struggles and anguish of human history, and yet with confidence that what is committed to Christ will in the end find its place in his final kingdom. See, by faith, we're asked to attach to this story of Jesus who took up the cross and to believe and embrace that God will take our lives to the place that he took Jesus' life when he raised him up and he gave him the name that is highest of all names that every day and someday, rather, every knee would bow to the greatness of his name. A couple weeks ago, I watched a little film um, called Of Gods and Men. Some of you may have seen it. It's the story of Trappist monks in a small village in Algeria in the mid-90s during a time of the Algerian Civil War. And this was a moment when Islamic extremists were sort of rising up against the government in their fundamentalist sort of entrapments. And uh, it became a very, very dangerous place for anyone that was foreign that was not Algerian inside of the community, and even for the Algerians, it became a dangerous space. And the questions that these monks were asking, there were nine of them, do we stay or do we go? I mean, it was just that simple. Do we stay or do we go? Because it felt like, palpably, that if they stayed, that what they would almost certainly encounter was persecution and even death itself, right? And these are the things that they're wrestling with. And so you see them around the communion as they sort of, the communion table as they sort of gather to the Lord's table. You see them around the dinner table as they're discussing honestly with one another. You see them in their spaces of prayer, rehearsing and remembering the story of who Jesus is. And they one by one come to the shared conclusion that they need to stay. That God's calling was that they stay. And the result was that they were kidnapped. Seven of the nine were kidnapped. And they were tortured and their throats were slit. And one of them, the prior, Father Christian, Brother Christian, writes this, or he left a note behind to be read in the event of his death. He says this, if it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism which now seems ready to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, my family to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I ask them to accept that the one master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I ask them to pray for me. For how could I be found worthy of such an offering? I ask them to be able to associate such a death with the many other deaths that were just as violent but forgotten through indifference and anonymity. My life has no more value than any other, nor any less value. In any case, it, is not, it has not the innocence of childhood. 
I have lived long enough to know that I share in the evil which seems, alas, to prevail in the world, even in that which would strike me blindly. I should like, when the time comes, to have a clear space which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and of all my fellow human beings, and at the same time to forgive with all my heart the one who would strike me down. How do you make choices like that? The only way to make a choice like that is to know the story of Jesus who took up his cross and of the Father who raised him up and gave him the highest name. And to by faith say, that is the story that I will attach my life to. I will lay my life down and follow in the same trajectory of Jesus. That is the arc of Christian discipleship. That is the calling that he puts upon all of us at City Church and all of the Christians in Philadelphia and all of the Christians throughout the world so that the tweets might become different. And yes, we confuse people, but it's because we take up the cross that we're called to confuse people. And we reveal a very different God and we reveal a very different way of understanding what it means to be a human being reconnected and reborn in his likeness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Jesus does confuse us and he scares us because we don't know what it might look like for us to practically take up a cross and follow him into the world. And it feels like death. Would you remind us as we continue in our worship of the reality of his resurrection so that we would become individuals who receive the cross he took up in our behalf and who live in the world as those who take up our crosses. Meet us, we ask in Jesus' name.